Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A couple of uh, quick housekeeping things before we pray. Um, Last week I mentioned something I meant to call the Bible Project, and I called it the Gospel Project instead. I wanted to clarify that. The Bible Project is the is what I was referring to, BibleProject.org, I think. They do videos, podcasts. It's a great resource for understanding the Bible. And their slogan is um, helping people experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. So that's what I mentioned. I wanted to clarify that uh, from last week. Um, another thing is next week I will be with my family in Pennsylvania. And so the good Dr. Barnes will be preaching for us. So, um, if, uh, if you're, you know, you don't want to miss it. It's, it's Clay Barnes. Uh, we're actually going to be a little bit out of order. Uh, Clay and I had talked about which passage uh, he was going to preach on, and then we, I split that last, the last passage up into two weeks, and so he's preaching on um, the end of chapter four, and we'll get back into the verse. Clay's going to talk about suffering, and I get to talk about hospitality, so it's, you know, that's, that's how it works. It's a win-win for everybody, and, uh, you know, Clay loves it. Uh, so let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll look at uh, this passage in First Peter. Father, we thank you for this evening, for this rainy, uh, cold evening when we get to come uh, together uh, to meditate on your goodness and your grace in the gospel when we see our sin and we understand it in its entirety that we would run to you uh, to be filled um, by the grace of Christ. So I pray tonight that you would fill us with your grace by your word, uh, by your table, and that together that we would um, be filled with the peace of Christ that we just talked and sang about. So we ask you to open our eyes and our hearts now as we read your word. So I have to admit, this, uh, this passage this week was difficult uh, for me as I was preparing. And part of the problem is that this, there is a lot of things that you could say from this passage. Peter is talking about a lot of things. The image for me was like there's, there's bridges out of this passage into like whole continents of theology that we're not even going to talk about tonight or touch on. Um, so there's all kinds of stuff that's going on in this passage. Um, we're not going to hit on all of it. We're not going to get to all of it. Um, and so we're going to kind of focus in on, I think, what's, what Peter's big idea is, and that fits in with what we've been talking about with faithful presence. And, and in this passage, he gets into the moral dimension of what it means to live faithfully in the world. This 
is not, uh, maybe not unsurprising to us. The idea that, that Christians have a specific moral way of living is pretty well known, right? People, would, people use the word Christian as like an adjective to, to say that you were nice to somebody. Oh, that was, a, that was a Christian thing to do. The idea that Christians have a specific morality is not uncommon, and that's kind of where he, he digs in here. But even as Christians, we have often gotten this idea of morality very backwards, and as I looked at this passage, there's two specific things that I wanted to call our attention to, two mistakes that we make when we think about and talk about morality, both what it is and then how we relate to the world with it. So I'm going to call our attention to two, two mistakes, hopefully correcting those a little bit or helping us shed some light on that uh, to help restore this idea of, of, of the way that we live morally should be part of our faithful presence in the world, and yet oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes, we don't get that, that right. So Peter's calling us from something to something else, and we're going to look at both, both sides of those things. Always, again, answering this question of what kind of life leads to Jesus. And I, I, I've had a good kind of adjective and noun to go for most of these messages, and I just literally couldn't come up with one for this one. So the what kind of life leads people to Jesus, we're just going to say it's a surprising life. A surprising life leads people to Jesus. So let's see what is surprising, what is supposed to be surprising about our lives as we look at these two mistakes that we often make. So let's look at mistake number one. And I want to read these verse, the first half of this, these verses again. He, Peter writes this. He, remember, he just talked about Christ's suffering. And then he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Okay. There's a lot of stuff there. But this, these two verses center on one little word that we, maybe you like it, maybe you hate it. It's the word sin. You see it in there? So as to live... What is it? Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Sin is, is kind of the topic here. We're like, it's Christmas time. Let's talk about sin. Right. So when, you, when we talk about sin, you've probably heard people define sin as missing the mark. Missing the mark. Right? The Old Testament word for, the Hebrew word for sin literally means like, it's an archery term, meaning that you didn't hit the bullseye, that you missed, that you failed at something. And when we think about that, we instantly run to, I think, at least I have, and I've heard a lot of Christians and a lot of sermons and a lot of people talk about sin. And the idea behind sin is that sin is doing bad things. To miss the mark means to do bad things, to break the law, to do something wrong. We even talk about sins like uh, some, some people will talk about sins of commission where you do something wrong or sins of omission where you don't do something you're supposed to do. It's like doing bad things is what sin is for many of us when we think about sins, when we come in to confess our sins. Oftentimes what we're thinking about is these actions that we do that are wrong. And the problem with that, uh, that's our first mistake. Because saying that sin is doing bad things is like saying that a good athlete is someone who doesn't commit a foul in a game. Right? If, if an offensive lineman doesn't commit holding, he didn't sin, but that doesn't make him a good football player. Right? It reduces sin and morality into this little tiny box where we're just keeping the rules is what things is what it's all about. When you think a little more deeply about missing the mark, what, what, are, what are we actually missing? When Peter says that we, um, 
have, those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sin, what is he actually talking about? What kind of sin is he, is, he, is he saying? What are we failing to do? What are we missing? Well, it'll help to go back to the beginning, like we've done several times throughout this passage. In Genesis chapter 3, when Eve first sins, I want you to listen carefully to the wording that, that is used here. So when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, good for food, delight to the eyes, desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. But the rule in this case is do not eat from that tree over there. But when we read that, you see the the author is helping us see that the breaking of the rule is actually not the problem. The breaking of the rule was a symptom. It was a result of something that runs much deeper. (laughs) It's this desire that's in Eve, right? James says, each person is tempted. When, listen to this language, when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Just personifying sin into this thing that's conceived, that grows, that it's like a monster. It's the same way the very first time sin occurs in the Bible is in the story of Cain and Abel. After Cain kills Abel, God uses the word sin and says, sin is crouching at your door and it wants to devour you. It's this personification of this thing that's trying to desire and, and, and take us over. It's, it's a little bit more advanced than this idea of breaking the, breaking the rules, doing bad things. Right, take some examples. The, the, let's take the three big classic examples from the Ten Commandments, right? Lying. Lying is saying something about a situation. Lying is simply saying something about something. For it, to, for it to be lying, for it to be sin, it has to be inside of a relational context. Something has to have happened. I have to be saying it to you about something that happened. It requires specific relational context. It's the same thing with adultery. The scriptures do not say don't commit adultery because sex is bad. Like, for sex to be bad, it has to be in a particular relational context, right? Same thing with stealing. There, you can think of a lot of situations where you, we could probably justify stealing. Sometimes stealing might actually be the right thing to do. But in a particular relational context, stealing is wrong. So all of these things are connected to relational context. No action, no breaking of a law is bad in and of itself. It it requires a specific relational context. Why? Because at its core, according to the Bible, sin is not about breaking the law. It's about breaking relationship. Sin is about breaking relationship. It's inherently personal. It's inherently relational. And out, out of that, this, there's this desires that, these desires that we have that come out of us that cause relationships to get broken. Humans were designed to live in relational harmony. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Relational harmony is the picture of wholeness in the Bible. Relationship with God, relationship with others. Sin is when our desires come out of us and destroy the relationships around us. Okay, talk about the Bible Project. They have a video on sin. It's fantastic. I want you to hear this sentence. It says, failed human behavior, i.e. sin, sin is our tendency Toward self-deception, rooted in our desires and urges to act for our own benefit 
at the expense of others, leading to a chain reaction of relational breakdown. Say that again. That sin is rooted in our desires and urges to act for our own benefit at the expense of others that leads to a chain reaction of relational breakdown. But I would say that sin is my passions for me trumping my love for other people. When my passions for me trump my love for other people, that's sin. And that comes out in all kinds of ways. There's lots of rule-breaking that happens with that. But the main thing at the base level for sin is my passion for me trumping my love for other people. And this is how we see the Ten Commandments, right? The first four commandments talk about love for God. The second six commandments talk about love for other people. It's when we don't love God and other people, then we break those commandments. But the sin is these passions and desires that are in our heart for us that are pointed inward at what we want. That sin is way, way deeper and way more about doing bad things, but it describes this way that we deceive ourselves into thinking that what, that what is bad is good and what is good is bad for our own benefit. My desires for me at the expense of desires for other people. This runs super deep. And one of the main ways that the Bible talks about this, the New Testament, the term that it uses often is the flesh. Not that being flesh is bad, but that in the flesh, we tend to use the things of the world, sex, money, power, food, whatever it is, for ourselves instead of the way that we are designed, which is to love other people. We're actually failing when we sin, when we use the things of the world, pointing in to get our desires, we're actually being less than human. Because human, humanity is designed, full humanity in the image of God is designed to be in relational harmony with those around us. And when we violate that relational harmony, we, we we're less human than we, than we should be. That's sin. Let me think about how this plays out in the different contexts of our lives, right? In parenting, when we just demand that our kids do the right thing. Or in, in marriage, when we just think, well, as long as I just do the right thing, then she, she or he should respond in a certain way. We, we reduce morality to keeping the rules, doing the right thing, looking good. And yet, sometimes, doing the right thing can actually be way more selfish because we're doing the right thing in order to get something that we want. And we're using the law, the rules, in order to sin. It's a fascinating situation. Right? This happens in employee boss relationships, it happens in church, where we tend to focus on the externals, on the rules and keeping the rules, and, and we, we judge other people by what they do on the outside, and we say, that's a sin, and that's a sin, and that's a sin, when really sin is the thing that lurks behind. It's the desires in us for ourselves and not for other people, and we constantly misdiagnose that. And so why, why do I spend so much time on this? Because that mistake of getting sin wrong leads to another mistake, which is the one that Peter, I think, is actually trying to tell us about in this passage. And that's that getting sin wrong, in this passage, he says, Christians are people who have put sin to death. And if, that's, if our definition of sin is not doing bad things, or sin is doing bad things, we're going to get what he's calling us to wrong. Does that make sense? He's calling us away from sin to something else. If we get this step one wrong, we're going to get step two wrong. So listen to the next part. He says, for the time is past that suffices for what the Gentiles want to do. And he lists these things, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. You can hear in there, it's not, these are rules being broken, but it's coming out of this place of desire. He says, with respect to this, they, the world, 
the people who are doing these things are surprised when you don't join them in the same, and this is a fascinating phrase that's been in my head all week, in a Scottish accent because I have a Bible app where the reader is Scottish. And so I can only hear, I can only hear the words flood of debauchery in a Scottish accent, which is hilarious. So you don't join them in this flood of debauchery and they, they malign you. So the wrong way to read this is to say this means that what Christians do is stop doing bad things. Christians, the thing that should be surprising about you is that you should stop doing bad things. That's not what Peter is saying. As if the best way for us to live a surprising life is to kind of go over and stand in the corner and not touch or not touch anything. You know the, um, those little emojis on your phone of the monkeys? Like, hear no evil, see no evil. Those are actually, I looked these up because I was fascinated by that. They're called the three wise monkeys. It's some Japanese proverb about seeing no evil and hearing no evil. And we think that what, what Paul or Peter is calling us to do, and oftentimes as Christians, we think the best thing to do is just kind of go hide in the corner and try not to think anything bad and try not to do anything bad and try not to eat anything bad and try not, you know, just like, just don't do bad things. See no evil, hear no evil, whatever. But listen to the way Paul describes that mentality in Colossians. This is fascinating. Is if with Christ you died to the world, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts. These rules have appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Sin is way deeper than not following the rules, and therefore the result, the solution needs to be way deeper than following the rules. And as Christians, we tend to build these little things, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, do this, do this, and as long as you do these things, you'll be fine. And we think that the best way to represent Christ to the world is just by not doing bad things. Let me, let me tell you a little secret is that Christians do bad things. Okay? I don't know if, if you've noticed, read the news about pastors who have fallen, read the Bible. You ever heard of David and Bathsheba? People who follow God do bad things. Simply following the rules is not really what's at, what, what Peter is after, what God is after. When he uses these, this phrase, flood of debauchery, which is super weird. We don't use the word debauchery very much. You know what that word is talking about? It's talking about excess, it's talking about the result of sinful desire sort of run amok, where there's no limitation, there's no end. It's like a shorthand way of describing what happens when those passions for ourselves have no boundaries, have nowhere to stop. They just, they just start running, and there's nowhere to stop, and so there's just this excess of crazy sin. And what happens is those things that he describes, right, orgies and drinking parties, these are like, these are like the outcome of no boundaries whatsoever, He's not saying, he's not expecting that people were participating in those, right? He's like, hey, you're not participating in those. People are going to be surprised when you're not. The point is not that they're surprised because you don't do those things, but why you don't do them and how you don't do them. Okay, the thing that people should be surprised about in Christians is not just don't do bad things. Most of the world would think it's a good idea to not do bad things. What's deeper than that for Peter is a different desire that out of our hearts comes a different kind of desire. It's a different way of interacting. 
that there's this, in, in a Christian who has understood Jesus and has come in contact with Jesus, there's, the, there's this invisible force that's coming up out of them that's changing the way that they see and, and interact with the world. That we don't go stand in the corner and hide away from the world, but that we can actually go out in the world and touch the things that God has made, food, sex, power, money. We can touch all those things and they don't control us because we have a different kind of desire that's coming out of us. See how that connects with getting, we have to get sin right. We have to understand sin as our desires for us so that when we go out in the world, we're not trying to enforce on other people things that aren't important, that we're understanding that what really matters is these desires that come out of us. That the Christian distinctive is not doing less bad things, but it's an entirely different way of interacting with the world. Where we see the world and what God has made and what God has done as good, and we can use it as good and not have it dominate us. There's this great exchange. This is what Peter says. He says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, we're in the flesh. In this case, he's using in the flesh as just being alive in the body. To live the rest of the time in the body, no longer for human passions, these desires for our own good at the expense of others, but for the will of God. In a Christian, there's this exchange that happens. From running headlong to get what we want for ourselves at any relational cost, which is sort of typified by this list of things that he says. The other side of that is the will of God, that we're driven, not just the will of God as a list of rules to follow, but will of God as a love for others that actually comes out of our hearts. That is what will be surprising to people around us. When we can be with them and around them, when we can go to places with them, we see Jesus doing this all the time. He goes and he's in and with and among the people doing all the things that they do and yet in a completely different way because he has this love of God that's coming out of his heart. It's really interesting. I, there's no time to quote it, but if you have time, go read the book of Second Peter. He's, he really hones in on this. These like four verses are like a shortcut <laughs> to... Uh, all of Second Peter, because Second Peter is very concerned with people who are not stopping from sin, <laughs> and people who are bringing sin into the church. And it's really interesting. He uses two ex- Old Testament. Well, he uses a lot, but two big Old Testament examples to describe the kind of life that he's talking about. A surprising life is he uses Lot and Noah. We talked about Noah last week. Noah is this guy who he's saying he's in and among the people, he's with the people, and yet he has this different kind of love in his heart. But Lot, we tend to think of Lot, if you've read the story of Abraham and Lot, Lot kind of a bad guy. Remember Lot and his daughters and Lot and his wife who turns into a pillar of salt and all this crazy stuff. Like Lot, Abraham's a good guy, Lot's a bad guy. But Second Peter, Noah actually, like three, or uh, sorry, Peter actually, like three times in one verse calls Lot righteous. And says that he was tormented in his soul as he lived among the people that were doing the flood of debauchery while he was longing to be righteous. We think that to be righteous means to run away from Sodom. And yet Lot is seen as righteous because he's right there in the middle of Sodom with and among the people. But not owned by the sin like they were. Because he has a different desire in his heart. There's a lot of detail there. Go and read it. And this is what he means, Peter, when he says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the same thing as last week, where it's talking about the Old Testament 
the gospel was being preached. There is a way of salvation to people who have now died. And last week, those people died. They didn't obey and they were, were put in prison. Now it's referring to people who have died in the flesh, but because they heard the gospel, they're able to live in the spirit. This, he's using the same, the same metaphor and tracking it forward. So the result of this is that Peter expects that if we've met Jesus, that we will have this sort of uncanny ability, this sort of unforeseen, this invisible power that people are like, how do you do that? How do you go out and have one drink and not 74? It's not self-control. It's the power of, I mean, it is self-control, but it's not self-control. It's the spirit of God in us. How do you, um, how do you, how are you able to eat and not be a glutton? How are you able to have sex and love it without lusting? How are you able to be a politician and not be power hungry? You, you see, like, it's touching and handling the things of the world without having those things dominate you. That is the thing that's supposed to be surprising to the world. We're, like, unfloodable. The flood of debauchery, we as Christians, Peter says, are, are unable to be flooded because we have this other principle that's at work in our hearts. So how does that work? How does that happen? Like, that doesn't always feel like the way that, that our lives work or our lives happen. And to be honest, um, I don't know how it works. I don't know. <laughs> um, Peter says very clearly that if we are contemplating the suffering of Jesus, that this is what should happen to us. There's, a, there's an author that I love. Um, I read this book. Um, I brought it with me. It's St. Athanasius. It's called On the Incarnation. And this is going to sound really nerdy to most of you, but this book um, written in the fourth century, 300 and something. Um, a lot of this is like preface. The actual book's only like this thick in there, okay? Um, has been one of the most helpful and pastoral uh, and influential things in my life in understanding how the incarnation of Jesus actually impacts this invisible power in my life to not be overcome by my, my selfish impulses. Peter says it this way, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What way of thinking is that? It's the way of thinking that even though you live in the flesh, you have ceased from sin. You are not dominated by these selfish desires. How does that work with the incarnation? Listen to the way that Athanasius describes this. And I, as I was like writing down notes for this, I had like 74 pages of like quotes that I was going to give you. So this is the one that I picked. I hope this is a good one. He says this. You know how it is when some great king enters a large city and lives in one of its houses. Tracking? A great king goes into a city, lives in one of its houses. Because of his dwelling in that single house, the whole city is honored, and enemies and robbers cease to molest it. And he says this, even so it is with the king of all. He has come into our country and dwelt in one body amidst the many. And in consequence, the designs of the enemy against mankind have been foiled. And the corruption of death, which formerly held them in its power, has simply ceased to be. It's a fantastic metaphor. That Jesus the king came into our country, he calls it, and dwelt in one body in such a way that that enables us to live a different kind of life. How does that work? I don't know. 
I don't know, but I read enough of scripture and of things like this to believe that this is true. This is faith. (laughs) Faith in the fact that the incarnation is what allows us to be saved. That Jesus' suffering, and this is the, the consistent message of 1 Peter. I'm sure you'll get more of it next week with Clay. The suffering of Jesus has conquered the principle of self interest and selfishness that we have. And by understanding that and dwelling on it and being engaged with Christ, that we can live lives of overcoming that selfishness in such a way that it's surprising to the people that we come in contact with. He says, uh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You and I, we still live in bodies where we have selfish desires. But the reality is that Jesus came into the world and became a human who was able to live selflessly. And in so doing, he conquered that power and allows us to access it through faith, to be able to live our lives. Jesus did not come just to like pay off bad debt to God. He didn't just come to pay God off. He actually came to restore humanity to what humanity is supposed to do. And that's to love God and to love other people. So, we need to live in light of this reality. We got to understand, we got to get sin right. We could talk about this for a long time. When we engage with other people, we engage with our spouse, with our kids at work. We have to understand that sin in the biblical understanding is not about just, it is about doing the right thing, but it's not just about doing the right thing or stop doing bad things. It's about these deep desires of selfishness that create relational havoc. We have to get that right first. Because then as we know Jesus, we should be able to walk around in the world in a surprising way where we don't always walk around and create relational carnage. Like, are you the kind of person that there's just relational carnage behind you? Where the things that you do are often dominated by what's pointing in, selfish desires that are going in, and behind you then is just these trails of broken relationships. There's times when people sin against us and then there's a lot of times when we sin against other people. And we're called to be the kind of people because of Jesus living selflessly that can walk through the world not creating relational carnage. I think part of believing in Jesus is believing that that is possible, at least in part now, that we should pursue that. So do, do we stand like, are we, are, the other side of this is, are you a wise, are you one of these three wise monkeys types? Okay, where you're just like, you know, trying to just not see or do anything bad. That's not going to be surprising to the world. It's not going to bring the gospel to the world. Bringing the gospel to the world is walking out, having Jesus in our hearts and love flowing out of us in a way that overcomes those selfish desires so we can use and touch and be in and among the world without being conquered by it. So that's one side, would be to be a wise monkey. The other side would be to actually allow the flood to overcome you. Right? There's, maybe our flood is not, you know, drinking parties or orgies or the other things that he lists, but there's lots of other types of floods that we see in our world right now. Right? First world flood is like the flood of gossip, where we're just flooded with the desire to talk about other people. It's relational carnage, like 101. You want to create relational carnage? Gossip, 101. <laughs> the world loves that stuff. Because they can't help it because they're overcome with selfishness. Or consumerism, like the flood of consumerism, the flood of political ambition. There's all these floods over here. And there's only one way to not do that. And that's not to just try not hard not to do bad things, but to actually 
when you're in this, when you're in that moment where you're about to gossip, it's not the motivation to not do that is not going to work when you just say this is not the right thing to do. We need a deeper seated, Jesus oriented love for other people that will stop us from doing that and cause us to to be loving. I didn't do, we didn't do uh, an Advent series, but if every sermon is about Jesus, then every sermon's about Christmas, right? Matthew 1 says, Now the birth of Jesus came about in this way. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I don't know how it works. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Right back to, to Peter. Sin is the problem. Broken relationships propelled by our desire for ourselves at the expense of others. That's what Jesus allows us to be saved from. Hey, I, don't know what, I don't know what Christmas emotions you have, right? A lot of us have the sentimental emotions. Some of us have horrible emotions from the ghosts of Christmas past. But we have the reality of the incarnation, which should provide in us the same frame of mind, Peter says. That what this is all about, Christmas time, Advent, this waiting time where we sit in, you know, you come into a service like this, and if you want it to just be Christmas carols and happy clappy, you're like, why are we so somber around here? It's because of sin. We, we have to sit in the sin in order to get to Jesus, just like Lent and Easter. We embrace the brokenness of the world so that the coming of Christ is good news. And the thing that we celebrate, the incarnation of Jesus, it is the way to be free from those selfish desires that so tend to dominate us. I went to the Andrew Peterson concert this past week. I don't know if you know Andrew Peterson. writes amazing music. Um, and the, at the beginning of this Christmas concert that he, that he does, he always reads um, the very first story in the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a kid's book. Uh, that's the story, stories of the Bible. And the very first introduction to that is talking about stories in general and how the Bible is one big story that points to Jesus. And the best line in the whole thing, he says, the best part about this story is that it's true. Right, that's why we come in here, not because we just think this is for fun. It's not just because it's therapeutic and makes us feel better, but because we think and believe that it's true, that Jesus really did take on human flesh to restore us. And in that we can walk out into the world and live surprising lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Christ, we thank you that you came into our country, took on a real flesh and blood, um, heart-pumping, muscles, a broken human body, and yet in the thing that matters most, in the desires of your heart, you loved God and you loved others that you restored the way for us to be the kind of people um, that can see and receive your world as good and use it for the benefit of of others, not being overcome by the selfish uh, desires that that imprison so many people that we come in contact with. We thank you for the freedom and the power of that and ask that those who don't know it would come to understand it, would experience the freedom and the joy and the peace of seeing in the incarnation the real power um, for escape from sin. Make us surprising in the world, Father. One of the ways we do that 
It's by giving back to you all that you've given to us, not out of duty. God forbid that we would give out of duty, that you would allow us to give out of a delight and a love for others. Receive these uh, tithes and offerings now as, a, as an act of worship for you. In your name we pray.